0: this headline that says, if you thought things were crazy in America now, they are about to get even crazier. And, uh, you know, who knows where, where things are going at strange times, um, may even get stranger, you know, who knows what's going what the election will look like and after the election and whether it will be settled. It's just bad news, plenty of that to go around. Amen. Um, but how would God have us to respond to bad news? How would God have us to respond. Let's look at how Nehemiah responds as a godly response. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll read all 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, you promise you promise it where two or three are gathered, that, that Jesus would be there among us. You promise that as your word goes forth, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it, that you are watching over your word to perform it, to, to tear down, pluck up that which are strongholds, which are lies, and to build up Jesus in us, to plant Jesus in us. And I pray that you would be faithful to your promises to do that tonight. And I pray that by the blood of Jesus, for his, for his name's sake, amen. So to give you a bit of a history lesson, kind of bring you to uh, tell you what the setting here, here is. You know, we have Nehemiah here. He's a Jew, but he's living in exile in Persia. 150 years before this moment, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. And that we saw when we went through the book of Habakkuk together that, that was Babylon was used by God to bring judgment on the kingdom of Judah, on Jerusalem for their consistent rebellion for their unrepentant rebellion and um, Babylon what they also did as part of God's judgment is they exiled many Jews out of Jerusalem they removed them from the promised land uh, where God's presence had dwelled in the temple God's presence dwelled there and Ezekiel when that you know when they were exiled he even saw a vision where God's presence left the temple and so just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they had to leave the presence of the Lord. They had to be exiled from the garden. So the Jews are exiled from the promised land here and from God's presence. About 50 years later, Babylon has now been conquered by the kingdom of Persia. Persia has basically inherited the empire. Um, but just as Isaiah prophesied, uh, its um, favor is now being shown through, uh, through Cyrus, the king of Persia. Um, some exiles are being sent back to rebuild the temple. Um, and, you know, though about 50,000 of them had returned, there had been like 2 or 3 million who had been exiled out. But then 50 years later, about 2%, 50,000 had been sent back. And so then we come to this moment nearly 100 years later from when they had first gone back, 150 years you know, later from when Jerusalem had been destroyed. We come to this moment, and you see that Nehemiah, that his lineage was among those who had stayed in uh, exile, stayed in Persia, but you see that his heart is in Jerusalem, and he hears the report of the state of things in in Jerusalem, and he his response is to mourn. Um, Nehemiah, he was a to tell you a little bit more about him first, though he was a a cupbearer in the king's court. Basically, what his his role was, was to drink the wine before the king would drink the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Um, you know, Even though he was helping the king, I'm sure that's something that would not have been approved by the CDC. Uh, those guys would have had to be quarantined together, you know, sharing the same cup. Um, but he, he here in this palace, he, he has a good life. He's, he basically serves in the king's cabinet, but he's concerned about Jerusalem, about his people. Jerusalem was in ruins. There were no city walls. Why is that a big deal? You know, maybe some of us would, we'd like it if we had some walls around, you know, separating us between Roxburgh and Durham. Uh, but we, there's no walls here. It's not necessary. We just flow freely through 501. Um, but, so why is it a big deal for this ancient city not to have walls? Basically, they were completely open and vulnerable to enemies. Uh, to people coming in, and there was just constant stress and tension. It says they were in great trouble and shame, just always afraid of possible attack. There's nothing valuable that could be stored there because it could be stolen. So There's lots of instability, lots of economic instability. And you see here that uh, they're called survivors. They're not prospering in any way. They're merely, merely surviving. And so we don't know if Nehemiah, you know, just didn't know what the state of it was. Surely he did, but maybe it just all hit him in a fresh way. But his immediate response, hearing about his people, is to sit down, to weep, and to mourn. And not just at that moment, but for days. And And he goes into a process of continual fasting and seeking the Lord's face, seeking God to do something about this. Let me ask you, what is your typical response to bad news in our nation? I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. A lot of times for me, it's just it's anger. It's, it's outrage. A lot of times, it's annoyance. Very often, uh, just cursing government officials, bad-mouthing them under my breath or publicly. And, um, and sometimes, though, it's just simply complacency. Just not stirred at all. Unmoved, numb to it. Let me ask you, what is your response to the immorality and rebellion in our nation? Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, just to kind of give you a picture of how things have uh, progressed or digressed in our nation, but cohabitation was considered a, a shameful thing. Um, premarital relations was taboo. And now that's just kind of commonplace and assumed. And since 1973... 61 million babies have been aborted. Are you lamenting over these things? Are you, have you mourned before the Lord over the state of our people? As Second Chronicles 7.14 calls us to, are you humbling yourself and seeking God's face and turning yourself from God's wicked ways, calling on Him to forgive us of our sins and to turn and to heal our land, just as He promises in seven fourteen. Are you fasting and seeking God in prayer, desperate for His mercy, desperate for a revival in our nation? A word about fasting. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of us here have never fasted. The, you know, the church tradition that I grew up in, uh, we never fasted, and I always thought it sounded a little crazy. You know, why would you go without food? I mean, voluntary suffering? Ooh, no. And, uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, maybe it's something that we as, as elders should, should lead you in, but don't, don't wait on us necessarily. But why, why would you fast? I mean, I, all the time I, I feel like God calling me to fast is like, that's like the last thing I want to do. I love to eat. Uh, but um, why fast? Why not just pray? Why fast as well? well fasting proclaims something to God and to your own heart. It proclaims to God that you, God, are all I need. I need you like bread. I need you more than bread. You are the one who sustains me. You are the one that I am desperate for. And it proclaims the same things to our own heart. It, you know, we need to preach that to our own hearts that God is all that we need. And we need Him more than food. Fasting focuses your attention on the Lord because. Every time that belly rumbles, you're reminded to turn your attention to Him. Um, if you're going to try fasting for the first time this week, I'll, I'll give you some cautions. Never do it to try to impress the Lord, um, to gain His favor. You have favor in Christ. Um, never do it to try to impress others. And I would commend replacing your, your meal time with time in prayer. And uh, you may not experience closeness with the Lord in the midst of fasting. It might be one of the most horrible experiences you've, you've felt recently. But, but as Hebrews 12 says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but later on yields a harvest of righteousness. So Nehemiah, he responds with fasting and prayer. And I want to look now at, at eight quick observations of um, Nehemiah's prayer. And I know you're thinking 15-minute introduction. I don't know how you're going to do Eight quick things, but, um, but let's go. Most of them will be quick anyway. First observation. Nehemiah remembers who God is. He praises the Lord. Nehemiah remembers who God is. He praises the Lord. Uh, they, again, has a dual function of giving God glory. And he's worthy of us giving him praise. Amen? But it also, as you, as you um, praise God in prayer, as you begin your prayer in praise and adoration... You're reminding your own heart of who he is. You know, we can't see him. We don't know what he looks like. How do you know what he's like? By his word. And so we praise him according to his word. And that shapes our prayer. Look at how it shapes the prayer of Nehemiah. He says, God, you are a great and awesome God. I know awesome is a word doesn't carry a lot of weight. You know, when I was um, a a young boy, teenage Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were really popular, and everything was awesome. You know, cowabunga, dude. And um, so we've really watered down that word, right? But if something is awesome, it is something that you are in awe of. You could also translate this word as terrible. God is a terrible God. He's not one that we approach lightly. He is a holy God whom we come before in fear and trembling and reverence. He is a great God. He is God. He rules over all things and nothing is impossible for him. Remembering who God is also gives you confidence. Let me, let me ask you this. How can Nehemiah call on the Lord to rebuild the walls when the walls had been destroyed because of God's judgment on them? The walls were destroyed because of God's judgment. So what right does he have to call God to help with rebuilding them? It is because God is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Second observation. Nehemiah looks to God to do what only God can do. He looks to God to do what only God can do. These walls, as I've said, have laid in ruins for 150 years. It's a long-standing problem. And the very king that he's about to go in front of to ask for help has opposed this rebuilding in the past. Uh, some years earlier, we learned this from Ezra chapter 4, um, some, some Jews had started trying to rebuilding the wall, and some of their local enemies had written a letter to King Artaxerxes and said, hey, these people are known for their rebellion. Um, don't let them rebuild the wall. They're going to rebel against you too. And Artaxerxes falls for it, and he says, stop the rebuilding. And so he's going before someone who's basically an enemy to this project uh, over a problem that's been in place for 150 years. And he's asking God basically to do something that's near impossible. And because, I'll tell you how the story ends, because God hears his prayer and shows him favor, a 150-year-old problem is solved in 54 days. 54 days, the wall is rebuilt. Third observation, he confesses sin on behalf of his nation, his household, and himself. He confesses sin on behalf of his nation, his household, and himself. Nehemiah takes responsibility for the state of his nation, the state of his people. He takes ownership. He does not blame shift. He takes responsibility. Now, let me ask you, was Nehemiah there 150 years ago when Jerusalem was judged? He wasn't. But he understands that he is part of this people, this, this people who is in covenant with God and um, this people who have sinned. And he takes responsibility and intercedes for his nation, confessing sin on its behalf. And Guys, it is entirely appropriate for us to lament and confess sin. Uh, the sin of our nation. It is entirely appropriate for us to lament before God and confess sin on our nation's behalf. Confessing that we are a people guilty of murdering innumerable babies. We are a people guilty of hating all forms of authority. A people guilty of casting off all restraint to do whatever we want. Guilty of all manner of sexual sin. A people who not only writes evil into law, but celebrates it. A people who rejects the good designs of our Creator, calling man woman and woman man. We are guilty of racism. We are guilty of all manner of division and of divisiveness. Guilty of backbiting, of slander, of lies. Who struggles to trust the media? Who struggles to trust politicians? Who struggles to trust your neighbor? We're a nation guilty of lies. Guilty of greed. Guilty of pride and arrogance. We celebrate pride like it's a virtue. We're we're a nation guilty of warmongering and empire building encroaching on the freedoms of other nations. We are a nation with a history of slavery, in a nation where slavery still exists. It's estimated that some 200,000 people are slaves to human trafficking in our nation right now. Without getting into graphic details, I'll just tell you many of them are minors. Most of them are minors. Does this move you to lament? Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on our nation. Confessing its sin should be our continual practice. And he, he, he not only confesses sin on behalf of his nation, but he confesses sin on behalf of his household. Um, you know, men, who, who does the Bible regard as head of the household? The husband and the father. It, it is, you know, marriage is a covenant relationship. And in a covenant, the head of the covenant is the one who is held responsible for the state of, of that household. And so, men, we are the ones held responsible. We, we know. That we are responsible for providing for our families and and responsible for protecting our families. But that's not just physical protection and physical provision. We are responsible for the spiritual state of our households, for spiritually protecting our families from lies, uh, for spiritually providing for them and raising up our children to know the Lord, to be disciples. And so, men, I challenge you to take responsibility for the spiritual state of your household to, con- to make it a practice of confessing the sins of your household it, yes your god will hold your wife and your your children responsible for their sins individually but he will also hold you responsible as head of the household and and uh and finally Nehemiah confesses sin on behalf of himself he's He's not excluded here from from guilt and from complicity in his nation's immorality. He confesses sin on behalf of himself as well. Fourth observation. We'll move quicker now, but he remembers God's promises. He remembers God's promises. Uh, Look at at verse 8. He says to God, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he quotes here from, from Deuteronomy 30. He quotes God's promise to him or paraphrases it. He says, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And God had done that. He had been faithful to that promise. But then look at this, verse 9, he says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He says, God, you promise that if we, if we humble ourselves, the Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if you humble yourselves and, and seek the Lord's face, and turn from your wicked ways, then, then, then God says He will, um, for the sake of His name, He will forgive us of our sins and He will heal our land. And so we should go to God over those promises. Fifth observation He remembers God's great acts of redemption. He remembers God's great acts of redemption. He remembers that God is a saving God. A redeeming God. Most likely, it uh, says in verse 10, he says, "You know, these are your servants and your people who you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Most likely, he has the Exodus account in view. God's people had been delivered and made a people to be his own possession um, by the blood of the Passover lamb. His judgment fell on those who were outside the covenant. And, and, and judgment passed over those who were faithful to apply the blood of the Lamb, God had saved them. God has saved us by the blood of Jesus. And we should remember the blood of Jesus as we come before the Lord. It's our only ground for coming before the Lord. And it's our only ground for asking for God's mercy because we are guilty people and judgment is deserved in our nation. But by the blood of Jesus, Lord, would You have mercy. God, remembering God's great acts of redemption, reminds us that nothing is impossible for the Lord. Just as He had, in a mighty way, delivered the Jews, parting the Red Sea, delivering them from Egypt, just as He, in His sovereignty, used evil men to put Jesus on the cross to accomplish our salvation, so He can do marvelous things in our day to save souls. Sixth observation. He offers himself to God to use in answer to his prayer. He offers himself to God to use in answer to his prayer. Uh, in verse 11, he's asking God to work. But then you see uh, that he is um, hes willing to be part of the solution. He is planning to go before King Artaxerxes. He says, give success to your servant today. Uh, Grant me mercy in the sight of this powerful man. He is, he is planning to do something. But notice this, and this should be our pattern. He goes to God first. Because God is the only one who can save souls. God is the only one who can bring revival. God is the only one who can do powerful things to awaken people to his mercy. And so God, if it's going to be done, you have to do it. But here I am. I'm willing. Here I am. Send me. I'm willing to be used of you as part of that. And along with that uh, seventh observation, he follows his prayer with waiting and action. He goes. He goes in front of this man. We see that uh, in a moment in in chapter 2. But he, um, he gives feet to his prayers. He acts upon it. He's not just idly saying, God, you do something about it, and then unwilling to do anything. But he offers himself, and then he follows through. But part of his action is continual waiting. Continual fasting and seeking the Lord's face. Uh, Look at at chapter 2, verse 1, up on your screen here. Uh, I'll point out a detail for you in a moment. But it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now it says here it's in the month of Nisan. Uh, Before, in chapter 1, we were in the month of Kislev. um, The Hebrew calendar that was four months later. You notice at the end of verse 11, he had been asking for success today, but four months later is when God answers his prayer, and um, to sum up what happens, the king sees that he's sad, that he's been mourning, and he had never been sad of heart before the king before, and, and so he tells uh, the king about you know just mourning over uh, the state of his people and uh you know, with, with great fear and trembling and in reliance on the Lord in prayer, even in that moment, he asked uh, the king. He asked God to help him, and he asked the king to bless uh, them and to basically to provide money to, to, to go and to help make this happen. And It's a bold request. But he, So he followed up with action, but part of that action was continual waiting and seeking of the Lord. And the, that brings us to the last observation. He persists in desperate seeking of the Lord for others' sake. He persists. He continues to seek the Lord. I was talking with uh, Catherine Liggett in the, in the first service, and uh, just how encouraging it was to see that he's, he's moved in this moment. And it's easy to be moved in the moment, right? But he continues to mourn and to fast and to pray. And he had asked for success today. But he didn't get success today. He continued to wait upon the Lord, and how easy is it to grow discouraged when we don't see immediate answers to our prayer. But Nehemiah persists in seeking the Lord, clinging to his promises, clinging to the Lord's merciful character. And he persists in this desperate seeking of the Lord for others' sake. It's not wrong to persist in prayer for, for your own sake, but Nehemiah here is motivated by the needs of others. And we should be likewise. But often, if we're honest, our response is complacency. We are unstirred, unmoved by the evil and the devastation in our own people. Or very often we are angry because of how it affects us. We're not outraged over how it offends God's glory or how it's hurting countless people. But we're angry and annoyed as to how it affects us. But consider Jesus. All the Old Testament points to Jesus, he tells us. Consider Jesus. Jesus, like Nehemiah, he sees the devastation that is the result of our sin. And he sits not idly by at his place in the palace. But Jesus is moved to come, sent by the King of Heaven to do something about a long-standing problem. And Jesus solves a centuries-old problem in three days. Our sins are our problem. But Jesus, becoming our covenant head, makes them his problem. Confessing our sins. He wasn't confessing his sins. He didn't have any sins to confess. The perfect spotless lamb. But he confesses our sins and then offers himself to be that that Lamb of God, that sacrifice in our place. And even now, Jesus persists in coming after us. Coming after us by the Holy Spirit, pleading that we would return to God and receive His promise of mercy and blessing. Reconciliation to the Father's presence. A promise that is secured by His blood, by His great act of redemption. And it is by His sacrifice that we can now offer ourselves to God as acceptable living sacrifices, willing and eager to be sent by Him in His power for others' sake, for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we um, are both... Uh, disheartened by all that has taken place in our nation this year and also hopeful because it is clear that you are doing something and God may may we you know as at times we have been uh, mourned and broken I'm sure over the state of over the sinful state of our nation but God very often we're complacent we're angry we're annoyed God would you give us the heart of Christ God thank you that Christ did not stay idly by in his palace, but he came and he gave his life so that we might be reconciled to you. God, by his blood, by his, his spirit, the Holy Spirit that you've given to us, God, would you use us to be part of the solution in our nation. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy. Amen. We'll take um, the Lord's Supper now.